Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5pm in the city alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow, front and centre, a ton of central bank decisions and a little bit of data to get our teeth into through the next 60 minutes, Guy. I find it fascinating. So the US two years now completely round-tripped to where it was before Powell. US equity markets have pretty much done the same thing. What's going on this afternoon? That ISM number was a little weaker, um, but the markets reacted really strongly. But that's the story, isn't it? The data is weaker. I had some sympathy with Powell to a certain degree yesterday. We can talk about just how much he messed up that news conference. But to the degree that we had priced in 100 basis points of easing through to the end of 2020, investors looking for a firm nod to September and beyond, and they just didn't get it. Is the reaction a little overdone? That's what I was thinking about yesterday evening. Now, if the data doesn't pick up, operations sustain the expansion will likely lead to more rate cuts. And looking at the economic data today, that data is not picking up and will likely lead to more rate cuts, Guy. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And you also look at kind of what is happening globally. $14.1 trillion worth of negative yielding debt now around the world. Um, it's an attack on the Fed. You've got to kind of see it like that. Uh, the rest of the world is piling the pressure on, and you just kind of wonder when the Fed cracks on that one. The dollar is a really big factor. Uh, it continues to act as the shock absorber to the rest of the world. The president at some point is going to snap on it. Uh, it's, I, I think it's, it's a really difficult position they are now in. Um, the rest of the world, I, I think, is, is basically laying down a massive challenge to Jerome Powell. Um, let's get the, uh, the view of what is going on in the markets today. Michael Houston joining us from CMC Markets. Michael, what have you made of the price action for the last 24 hours? It's amazing, isn't it, Guy? One bit of bad data from the ISM, and then suddenly all bets are off and we're talking about September again. I mean, I do have a bit of sympathy with Jerome Powell. He's not your archetypal central banker, um, certainly not an economist by trade. Certainly probably would need a little bit of tuition maybe from Janet Yellen in how to handle the media. But, you know, I think it just gives you an indication of how fickle this market is. I thought the Fed basically played it quite well in terms of pushing back against the president. I thought those two cents were a great way of the FOMC to flip off the president because ultimately how the Fed sets policy is none of his business. And I think the Fed should be allowed to get on with setting policy. What we saw yesterday was an admission that the December rate hike was a mistake. But to base policy decisions just on a very small part of the U.S. economy, and manufacturing is a small part of the U.S. economy, and it's not immediately apparent to me how a 25 basis point rate cut is going to help the manufacturing sector, the global manufacturing sector. If you look at the rest of the U.S. economy in the round, it's doing okay. U.S. consumer confidence in July, best levels this year. So the U.S. consumer, which makes up a good proportion 
of U.S. economic activity is yeah. showing no signs of stress. And that, for me, I think, is really the key guideline that the Fed really has to base its monetary policy decisions off. Well, let's start with the Federal Reserve and the performance of Chairman Powell, and then we'll work our way from there, shall mm. we? I thought the statement was great, really well-crafted. I agree with you. The dissents send a message that we should probably spend a little bit of time talking about through the programme. But the performance of the news conference was absolutely terrible. Mm. There was a moment in that news conference where he mentioned the words interest rate hike, realised what he said, had to walk it back. He was asked pretty clearly from Michael McKee for a second time, why will lower rates help? Didn't answer the question. Mike, then off mic, had to shout out, follow up and ask him to answer the question. He fumbled the response as well. Mm. I think Chairman Pound, I'm going to go to something from our competitor from yesterday following this news conference, Steve Leesman over at CNBC. I think he nailed it. Chairman Powell thinks he's a better communicator than he actually is. And it leads him to be careless. Whereas Chair Yellen thought she was a bad communicator and it made her really, really careful about every word she used. And I think the same would be true of President Mario Draghi as well. Powell absolutely fumbled it yesterday, but I don't think that detracts from the fact that the epicenter of the message was that this is a mid-cycle adjustment. So mm. we need to spend some time now thinking about what a mid-cycle adjustment looks like. And back in the 90s, it was about 75 basis points. I know they had more to play with mm. back then, but I'm just wondering if that's the guide for what's about to come from this Fed. I just think the Fed doesn't want to pre-commit to a preset course, and what they did yesterday gives them optionality. I know the market wants to push them into signalling a much more aggressive rate-cutting path, but I don't think, as far as the US economy is concerned, we're there yet. And ultimately, it's about signalling to the US consumer. Consumer confidence is at very significantly high levels at the moment. And I think it's not just about Fed signalling to the market. It's what the Fed is looking to signal to US consumer in general. And I don't think it wants to spook them particularly, given the fact that we've got payrolls and our wage growth is still at a fairly decent level. And for me, I think it's really about optionality. Now, you know, you can argue about, you know, Powell's communication skills. You know, I think you and I, John and Guy, we all work in an environment where everyone scrutinises what we say. And unfortunately for Powell, he's in a situation where the whole world is scrutinising what he's saying. Yeah, he took the job, though. Um, he did? Well, yeah. <laughs> but would you have turned it down, Guy? No, probably not, but you... you kind of, you'd have to assume... I hope that Guy would do a better job of communicating what the FOMC were trying to deliver. Hmm. Yeah, you say that we're being scrutinised. I'm not sure on this programme we are particularly, but that's (laughs) probably a good thing. Otherwise, Um, we'd probably get in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, But but my question is, do you think... He he needs in some ways to get the markets off his back, though. Hmm. He's pushed himself into a corner... He needs to get the markets off his back. I, they're not going to be completely off his back, and uh, I appreciate what you say about every word being scrutinised, but I just didn't think he did a good job of delivering that kind of press conference that was required I think to, this to achieve where, that. And I think, I, think, and I, think, and I think And I think this is really important. This is important for the global economy. No, it is. How fluffing it yesterday has, has meaningful implications for the rest of the world. Yeah, I mean, we can't, well, we can't change that. What's done is done. But I think what, can, what we can do is I think other policymakers on the committee can help him out here in terms of the message. So we may find over the course of the next few days that Clarida um, and other people on the committee can actually help craft a much more elegant message um, from what we saw 
yesterday. I mean, as I say, what's done is done. Uh, the damage is done, if you like. Um, and really now it's a question of how does the Fed fix it in terms of further responses from other policymakers on the voting committee. How do they fix it? How do they manage that message between now and Jackson Hole? Well, f- for me, it's about data dependency, and it's always been about data dependency, and they j- I think they need to ram that home. Um, the Fed will act um, when it sees a significant or sees evidence of a significant, significant deterioration in the data. That starts tomorrow with the latest payrolls numbers um, and the wages numbers. And if there's a significant deterioration in wage growth or the headline numbers, then maybe we're off to the races. But I think to craft a direction of travel based on a fairly weak ISM number and a weak prices paid number, I think that more than anything is probably what the market's reacting to. That deterioration in the prices paid component in July sends a message that inflationary pressures are very, very weak. But again, I'm not really sure how another 25 or 50 basis points is going to resolve that. Michael Houston is going to stay with us. We'll carry on the conversation. We'll get an assessment of what Governor Carney's press conference delivered today as well. Um, not a lot, I think, is probably the simple answer. That is coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area. Currently, the British pound versus the US dollar. The cable rates trading 121.36 off its earlier loads. Earlier, it got to 120.80. The Bank of England Governor Mark Carney delivering a press conference a little earlier as well, defending the central bank's assumption that there won't be a no-deal Brexit. Market's not quite so sure. Carney says that it's still the government's official position to reach an agreement with the European Union. He spoke after the BOE left interest rates unchanged. Michael Houston, Chief Market Analyst at CMC, still with us. What do you make of his performance? He kind of dodged every question there was. Yeah, I mean, I think he's getting a little bit of grief for not outlining potential forecasts in the event of a no-deal Brexit. But to defend him, and it pains me to do this because... I'm one of his biggest critics when it comes to central bank forward guidance. How can he plan for something when you don't know what the reaction function is going to be, first and foremost, of the British government in terms of of a fiscal response, but also from the other side of the fence, um, uh, French policymakers, German policymakers, EU policymakers in general in terms of their mitigatory measures in terms of a reaction? Um, so I think it's very, very difficult to outline any number of scenarios because there isn't a single scenario to mitigate against what essentially is, I'm not going to say a black swan event because potentially we know that it's coming and certain, um, certain businesses have taken some mitigatory measures, measures. But to all intents and purposes, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to really outline a plan for something that's going to be remarkably fluid. I think the big problem that people have at the moment, Mike, is that we don't really have any real scenario analysis coming from the bank. Well, I, I think we but do. I think, they planned, I think they planned for it, John. I just think to publish it 
is going to be very politically difficult because then you'll get everyone trotting out the old old oh, project fear this. And no, no, no. I, I totally agree with that. that. I, I totally agree with that. I just think the frustration is you're putting out forecasts that are ultimately worthless. Well, yeah, but that's always been the case with the Bank of England. Really. I think they've, you know, they've been talking about the potential for a rate hike for the last two years, and the market, quite simply, hasn't believed them. If you look at UK gilt yields. They're trading around about 0.55, 0.6%. So the, there's already a rate cut priced in, ten years out. You look at the two-year; it's you know it's, it's even it's even it's even that. So, you know, the market makes up its own mind when it comes to the Bank of England four guidance. Let's not forget, Mark Carney said that he would look at raising interest rates when unemployment dropped below seven percent. So, what would, what would Gerard Lyons have done today? Do you think? <laughs> I honestly, honestly, guy, I think you're being a little bit mischievous because I don't know enough about Gerard Lyons. And to be quite honest, I'm not really sure he'd even get the job. I, I'm, I'm really surprised that his name has been mentioned. And that's not to say that he's not a very good economist. He, only, price, he obviously is, but he's not what I would call a central banker. He just comes from Christine Lagarde. Well, no, but he you know, Jay Powell. Yeah, Jay Powell's a lawyer. He's a lawyer, but at least he worked in the Federal Reserve. Well, well, at least Gerald's got a PhD. Yeah, he has, but he hasn't worked. He hasn't. He hasn't been a central banker. I mean, Jerome Powell was and is a central banker. He was on the vote setting committee when Janet Yellen was chair. So he's got an inside view of how the central bank works. Now that doesn't necessarily equip him to be a good public communicator, but he, at least he has an inside track of processes and everything else. You're talking about Gerard Lyons, and you're talking about an economist who used to be chief economist for Standard Chartered, and now parachuting him into the top job at the Bank of England. I mean, that is really a significant jump. Do you, do you think the pound would go up or down if Gerard Lyons was put in place? Do you think it would go down? For, uh, because people are saying that the risk of him not getting the job is that the pound would fall further. Well, I'm not convinced about that, because obviously he'd have to be appointed in the job after Brexit. So, because Mark Carney's term ends the end of January, so you're making an assumption yeah, that Brexit may well have already they? happened by then, or it may not. We could get another extension. Mark Houston, we'll continue this conversation. We've got to talk about some economic data out of Europe as well. Pretty dreadful, as expected. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Alongside Guy Johnson, I'm Jonathan Farrow. In the markets today, your price action looks like this. We are all over the place. The FTSE 100 flat at the close, negative 0.03%, a rally in Europe with the DAX up a half of 1%, all over the place in the United States. Down hard yesterday, up hard today, up nine-tenths of 1% on the S&P 500. Firmer on the Nasdaq by 1.41%. It's bad news, good news. The ISM in the United States for manufacturing did not look pretty going into payrolls Friday. Apparently risk assets enjoyed that move. The dollar hated it. The dollar was stronger. Then we started to turn around just a little bit. The euro's still softer on the session, though. Euro-dollar starting to break out of this really tight trading range that has dominated that currency pair through 2019. From somewhere between 112, 114, we break lower with dollar strength. Euro-dollar 110.59. The manufacturing data this morning, 
terrible once again, shrinking for a sixth straight month at the start of the third quarter, dragged down by, guess who, Germany, and the worst slump in German manufacturing in some seven years. Guy, the data doesn't look great in Europe, and it's interesting to see euro dollar finally break out of this really tight trading range through 2019. Yeah, um, I'm now beginning to hear the possibility that we don't get to 10 basis points in terms of cuts from the uh, from the ECB come September, that it could be 20 basis points of cuts. Um, as the data get worse, uh, the market is reacting. Uh, that would put the SNB in an interesting position. Um, there was a suggestion if the ECB went 10, the, the SNB would go 25. Uh, how much more would the SNB have to do? It's already negative 75 as well. The data around Europe are not good, um, but I think... As the data deteriorates and it puts further pressure on the ECB to act, I think that just feeds straight back into the Fed. And I just wonder at some point whether the Fed's going to have to crack as more and more negative debt piling up around the world, I think, poses a huge problem for the Federal Reserve. What's your latest? What are your clients saying? What's the kind of positioning, Michael Hewson, around what the ECB is going to do in September? Well, certainly looking at the client sentiment for our clients they are actually um, looking to buy the dip on euro dollar which personally I have a bit of a problem with because as you said it yourself we've broken below um, we've broken below that very very key level of uh, 111 so on a technical basis you'd have to sell it but there does appear to be a little bit of resistance to that which makes me think that potentially it can go down because the market's fighting the direction of the move. I mean, I think one thing that I think Mario Draghi will be happy about was the fact that Powell did fluff that press conference because the euro is lower. So essentially, it could buy the ECB a little Dra- bit. Draghi of fluffed his, to be fair, as well. Well, but yeah, he did. Um, which, which I'm actually quite surprised about, Guy, because Draghi, by and large, generally tends to be a very effective communicator. Um, so I'm thinking, and I think it was instructive what um, Ralph Hamers actually said today to you guys, actually, as it goes, the ING CEO. What difference will it make to the European economy, a 10, 20, 30 basis point deposit cut or rate cut, when the problems facing Europe at the moment are very much trade and manufacturing related? The same applies to the Fed. It does, absolutely, it absolutely does, John, because you look at Germany and you look at how much difficulty the economy is having on the manufacturing sector. A 20 basis point deposit cut isn't going to raise the water level in the Rhine, is it? Unlikely, to be honest. (laughs) Exactly. That was a rhetorical question. If Draghi can make it rain, then we're in a whole (laughs) different game. Yeah, I mean, that would really be pushing central bank um, ability to manipulate markets to the nth degree I think the biggest problem will be and this is something that I think we could start to see evidence of over the next three to four weeks is the malaise in the manufacturing sector starting to trickle down into the services sector Are we seeing that already in Europe? I'm not sure we are quite yet I, I think you are beginning to see some of it but, I, but, but those numbers are still positive Yeah, um, I mean, Look at Germany, look at the, the mid-50s yeah. If you look at the, German, the French GDP numbers the other day, completely supported by the domestic economy, completely mm. supported by the services side of the economy. So it's still, it is still there, but I just think at the edges, John, I think you are starting to see some evidence that it, that it is coming in. I think we're on a tightrope here, Guy, I think in terms of where the services sector can go. 
I think the longer manufacturing remains in the doldrum and remains in contraction, obviously this, there is going to be a trickle-through effect into services because you're going to get job losses in manufacturing, people are going to stop spending, retail sales is going to take a hit, and then you're going to get services start to roll over. Now, those German retail sales numbers earlier this week were very, very good, surprisingly, but they tend to be very, very choppy in any case. But I think the retail sales numbers out of the the EU ones tomorrow could be instructive. Um, And the services numbers next week could give us some clues as to how the European economy is performed in July. It's just a really tough place right now to be. I think confidence is, is really under pressure. Um, it looks like the trade narrative is going to drag on for quite some time. Uh, and Michael, the biggest loser out of the trade narrative, the trade story thus far, the trade war has been Europe, mm. Germany in particular. But you look at Sweden, sort of Sweden's economy as well, very similar sort of setup. If that trade war drags on and goes beyond the 2020 election, I, how bad could that be for Europe? If this becomes a, if this becomes the status quo rather than a blip, I don't think we'll have to wait until the 2020 election, guy. To be quite honest. Um, you know how long? How long is how long is the manufacturing sector in Europe been contracting? It's pretty much every month this year, and a little bit towards the end of next year. So I don't think it's going to take much longer before the services sector starts to roll over. Now it may not be it might be next in next week's numbers, but it could be in Q4, and that does that will present a problem for Madame Lagarde because I don't think that she's any way near adequately equipped to deal with that. What's needed right now is not a policy response from central banks. What's needed now is a fiscal policy response from politicians. And I don't think the appetite is there. And Mark, great to catch up with you. Michael Houston there joining us from London, alongside Guy Johnson and myself, Jonathan Farrow. Next up, the conversation comes to New York ahead of Payrolls Friday. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area. Guy Johnson here in London, John Farrow over in New York. Let's talk about what the last 24 hours has delivered. So it's fascinating. Um, I'm looking at a chart of the US two-year kind of started the power press conference almost exactly where it is now so we are now trading one spot 8201 on a u.s two year we've completely round trips not quite the same for the dollar so the bloomberg dollar index um i think we've retraced basically half of the move to the upside uh, that we have seen uh, on the u.s dollar so that's kind of uh, a little bit in contrast to what we're seeing with the uh, with the uh, the two year euro dollar breaking out of a range trading at now one ten fifty nine so quite a lot of movements what we've seen subsequent to the power press conference is the U S manufacturing ISM data which was weak a little bit weaker than anticipated not massively but significantly the market was looking for an uptick it didn't get it tomorrow of course we get payrolls let's find out what Sarah Ponzek has made of all of the action over the last 24 hours. She's a cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg. So let's get a taste of where she is right now. 
to kind of set the stage for the rest of this conversation. So what have you made of it? What was the highlight? What was the the story that's emerged from all of this, Sarah? We're we're pretty much back where we started. It's unbelievable. And all morning long over at the desk, we've been asking people for different theories. I mean, why do they think yesterday there was so much confusion? I mean, when you just listened to that press conference... There was a lot of confusion uh, from traders, also potentially from Powell himself, from the reporters asking the questions. And today it's like it never happened. Everything is great once again. And some who we've been speaking with have been pointing out the fact that, look, I mean, if you actually look at Fed funds futures and what is expected going forward, the market's still pricing in another rate cut for this year, another one come next year. And that's what was expected before we got the first rate cut as well. So, If you go back to those numbers and you think of the fact that nothing has actually changed too much for expectations, well, then you go back to exactly how assets are trading ahead of the meeting, which is stocks up, yields lower, bonds rallying, stocks rallying. Now, the dollar is an interesting story. Like you said, it still hasn't retraced itself completely. But we have seen it come down a a pretty good amount today. So now we're pretty much flat on the day. Some others out there are taking the more optimistic view, just saying that, sure, even if the Fed decides that one and done is okay, or maybe two and done is okay, and the reason that's happening is because they think that the economy is fine. So you still get some easing from the Federal Reserve. The numbers still look decent, not great, but decent, and you can go on with your lives. I think we've sort of got on with our lives and picked up on the underlying message that was meant to come from Chairman Powell yesterday. He reminded me of an inexperienced athlete. Let's use the example of football. You know when you go and play a football match and your first touch is rubbish and it just dictates how you play for the next 90 minutes? Stays in your head. That was just Chairman Powell yesterday. You could see his mind just working overtime. He mentioned a rate hike. Oh, no, I just said rate hike. I've got to walk this back aggressively. And I was sitting at home with the TV on just thinking, what are you doing? Just get out of there. Book a vice chair, Clarida Speech. Keep your head down until Jackson Hole and take a vacation. I've got to say I'm shocked in a way that we haven't heard or seen the carousel of other Fed speakers coming out yet. I guess maybe the market is doing their job for them, going back and realizing, all right, maybe he he talked himself all over the board, but this was the true message. This was the actual message. But yes, I mean, I was speaking with a couple traders during the press conference yesterday, and one just said, this is cringeworthy when he started trying to walk back his his mid-cycle adjustment comment. And then he threw in the, the phrase rate hike, and it was just, why would you even bring up a rate hike. Honestly, Um, the the whole thing is a mess. But the mess aside, you can pick up on this idea of what a mm mid-adjustment, mid-cycle adjustment actually is. We can reflect on the mid-90s. We can assume that if the data weakens, that the threshold is pretty low to deliver a rate cut over at the Federal Reserve. And the data was weaker today. So we go through to payrolls Friday tomorrow. And I sort of cheekily threw this out on Twitter because I was interested in the answer to it. Is bad news good news tomorrow? If we get a soft print, does it just confirm that September's in play for the Fed and off to the races again? It does seem like at this point in time, bad news is good news. It can't be horrible, but I asked someone this morning, if we get sub 100, would that actually be good? And he said, I I think so. He said... The sweet spot is probably not sub 100. Right now, the survey's calling for 165,000 additions. So probably the sweet spot could be roughly 140, 150. But even if you get sub 100, 
these numbers can be pretty volatile, and that would pretty much guarantee that the Fed has to go again. I mean, if the issue right now is that you're seeing a slowdown in manufacturing. Inflation is not turning up everywhere. You saw it again in prices paid data that came out this morning, but the consumer has been strong. The labor market has been strong. So if you see a little bit of a deterioration there, then you would imagine that that gives them way more leeway to actually cut rates again. If you were the ECB... Where would you be taking your cues from right now? Would you be looking at market pricing around the Fed and saying, OK, so the Fed's done 25. Market now believes that we get uh, back-to-back cuts. September's on. We need to go X. It's is, great- that, is that how it's going to work, do you think? I mean, it's a great question. And we have seen the two, it seems, almost taking cues from one another. Even after this last ECB meeting, there was concern that because – of their messaging that maybe the Fed felt like if they weren't meeting expectations, if they weren't being as dovish as expected, then maybe the Fed wouldn't be either. And we did get a decently hawkish hawkish cut, although that is being walked back today. But there's no doubt about the fact that they are absolutely taking their cues from one another uh, because right now, yeah, global central banks are easing, but obviously uh, the Fed is, is really, really the big one here. Do you know what the theme is for Jackson Hole this year? What is it? Challenges for monetary policy. Oh, good one. <laughs> Perfect timing. And I, and I was speaking to someone earlier, Bob Michael from JP Morgan Asset Management, and he just wonders if they're going to pay a little bit more attention to the financials and the banking system, which I think and many other people would agree with, and I assume you guys do too, mm-hmm. uh, has taken a real beating from the monetary policy of the last decade guy. And there are some people that just assume that this particular meeting at Jackson Hole might tee up some action from the ECB to do tiering and for the Federal Reserve to have a little think about the kind of damage that could be done if they do go on a rate-cutting cycle. What I find ironic is that the European banks are producing the best set of results that I've seen them produce in a really, really long time. Now, most of that is down to trading. I... Loads of European banks have beaten their US peers this time round. Um, and I, I appreciate that's not on an absolute basis, it's just on a percentage basis. But there are at least some signs that the European banking system is stabilising, but it hasn't taken the beating of another rate cut yet from the ECB. I just wonder whether there's actually signs that the European banking system may be getting closer to some degree of stabilisation. I, I, you are going to get additional rate cuts, that's almost certain at the moment. But you're going to get tearing with that. And you also wonder whether or not the ECB may end up buying some of the European bank credits. I just, I, there, there may be, I, and it has been an incredibly difficult story to call and the knife has just dropped and dropped and dropped and nobody has want to catch it, uh, to catch it. But European banks at some point start to look okay. Uh, and this, the set of numbers we've just seen from Barclays looked okay today, Sockgen's looked okay, Sockgen did it okay in equities, BNP did pretty well in FIC the other day. I'm excluding Deutsche Bank from all of this, of course. <laughs> but um, but it's 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 maybe just the first signs, ironically, as we as we reach the point where maybe some of these banks are starting to take central banks are taking some of the banks more seriously, that the European banks might finally be producing some okay numbers. Anyway, what should we talk about next? Some of the earnings maybe uh, worth focusing on as well. Plus we're going to hear from Rio Tinto a little bit later on in the program. Uh, its CEO had plenty to say on the Fed as well when I talked to him a little earlier. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. 
This is The Cable live across the capital on DAV Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio along with Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. In the equity market, then, no drama at the close on the FTSE 100, down by just 0.03%, a rally across the continent and a big pickup in enthusiasm in the United States. The S&P 500 up one full percentage point, the Nasdaq up 1.47%. In the bond market, the shape of things as follows, unwinding some of the move from yesterday with yields coming in five, six basis points on the two-year note at 181. The 10-year note coming in six basis points. Your bond yield there on a 10-year maturity, 195. But something that doesn't really change after yesterday is the flatness that was reintroduced to the curve following the Fed disappointment, if you do want to call it that. Two's tens right now coming in a half a basis point at around 14 basis point after a six, seven basis point move just yesterday. We don't undo that in today's session. So have a think about what that could mean, the read of the bond market right now on the economy. Caught up with someone a little bit earlier who said, you know what, if you want to make me give up my position on a 10-year maturity, you need to convince me that growth's going to pick up, that inflation is going to pick up, and for the Fed to do that, they need to come in with a much firmer performance than they did yesterday. So that's the bond market. Let's talk about stocks, because it was the busiest week for earnings of this earnings season, and Sarah, earnings have barely featured in the conversations that I've been having all through the week. It definitely doesn't feel like it's in the busiest week of earnings season, because it has, but all that anyone has been talking about was the Fed. In the lead up to the Fed, all anyone was talking about the Fed, obviously yesterday, all about the Fed. Now in the aftermath, it's all about the Fed. And sure, you had the likes of Apple. Apple did get some attention. But people really haven't been paying attention. And the fact of the matter is, there really hasn't been all that much of a change. Sure, companies are beating estimates, like they always do. 75% of companies have beat. That's pretty much in line with a historical average. No, we're not supposed to get a profits recession. However, there's still worries about the second half of the year and going into 2020 if those numbers need to come down. So even though this week was the busiest week for earnings season, other than if you're trading individual securities, it really hasn't mattered well, all that much. That's the issue, isn't it? Like So few people trade individual securities right. these days. Everybody basically is a macro trader because you're taking big positions in index funds or maybe you go down a level and you're looking at kind of something a bit more sex-specific or a bit more uh, kind of uh, tailored. But nevertheless, in a world where... Everybody owns ETFs, and most of the investments go through that channel. Then the Fed matters even more, which is which is a kind of worrying sign, don't you think, Sarah? It is, that the, and that that we rely on on kind of the Fed so much more. You, you, there is no kind of bottom up anymore. Everything is top down. The stock market, if you look at the S&P, it had not had a day of falling more than 1% in a while, in a really long time, until yesterday. And to show that yesterday was the first day in over a month that the stock market actually moved over 1% to the downside. And also, yesterday from 2 o'clock to 3 p.m. during that press conference was the busiest hour for trading all year long just shows you how attuned people are to the Fed. And Bernstein put out an analysis saying that if the Fed does go on an easing cycle, if they cut as of yesterday, if they cut again, this could potentially also just move more people into passive from active because it just goes back to that idea that who is driving the market 
it's the Fed. So what does active have to add if what's really causing the movements in the market, a more macro force like the Fed? Why not just go and buy the market as a whole then? Sarah Ponzo, it's been great to get your insight over the last couple of segments after a big, big day and a very busy hour. Uh, in the news conference, after the news conference, when was that busy hour? During the news conference? Two to three. Wow. What a move. Yeah. What a move and what a spike in volume as well. Sarah, thank you very much. I'm next on the program. Guy Johnson sitting down with the Rio Tinto CEO. His thoughts on China and monetary policy too. We'll bring that interview to you next on this program. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area. Mining shares under a little bit of pressure today. Rio Tinto, no exception. It shares taking a bit of a hit despite the company returning strong first half results and announcing a special $1 billion dividend thanks to a windfall from iron ore prices, which have been driven higher by Vale's troubles in Brazil. Now, earlier I spoke to Rio Tinto's CEO, Jean-Sebastien Jacques, and asked him whether the company's numbers, the good numbers this time round, are sustainable, given iron ore's inflated price. I think let's step back with the results today. 47th ABDA margin, 23% return on capital employed, $4.7 billion of free cash flow, and therefore... If you combine this with our strength of our balance sheet, we'll be able to return $12 billion of cash to our shareholders this year. So, fantastic performance. But if you were to step back and look at the last three and a half years, we've been able to return more than $32 billion. Yeah, okay. So but, a year ago that was disposals. A year ago that was disposals. And then this year is high iron ore price. I take the challenge on this one, right? If you look at the last three years, we were able to generate 45 billion dollars of, of cash flow, of which 34 billion dollars were from operations. Okay? And out of this pool of money, we did return 29 billion dollars of cash flow shareholders. So you could argue, if you look at the last three years, we used the proceeds from divestment to reduce our net debt, and then we did return the, the, the rest of the cash flow shareholders and so on and so forth. And that's why your question is absolutely spot on. What is important is looking forward, and there are two elements here. One on the outlook, I'll come back to this point. The second point is our ability to generate some cash, to allocate this cash with discipline and return cash to our shareholders. And here, we have a machine which is generating a lot of cash day in and day out, no matter what the market conditions are. And I think the track record we had in the first six months of this year, in the last three years, is a testimony on that. The second element, outlook, which is very important. Key market for us, China? The outlook is positive. Yes, as expected. The Chinese economy is slowing down. But, you know, and I'm going pretty often to China for obvious reasons, I've got no doubt in my mind that they will put stimulus package in place. They have done it this year. They will continue to do it. And therefore, the demand for steel and therefore the demand for iron ore, as I think it's simple, will continue to be very strong. First six months of this year, for the first time, the demand for steel in China was above 1 billion tons. That look is positive for us. Okay. So you're saying, you're saying it's sustainable? Okay, I, I think said the outlook is positive and we are well positioned. Okay. The Fed cut rates overnight. You talked about China stimulus. The Fed cut rates overnight, 25 basis points. Was that, was that required? We were not surprised by the fact that the, the economy in the U.S. is slowing down. Let me tell you why. We are the largest supplier of aluminum, or aluminum, should I say, to the U.S. 
So we supply around one third of all the aluminium consumed in the U.S. from our smelter in Canada, for example. We are a large uh, supplier of copper in the U.S. and we provide a few other products like borates and so on and so forth. We could see a softness in the automotive market and we could see the softness in the construction market for some period of time. And therefore, in that sense, we could see the economy slowing down. So was I surprised by the decision of the Feds during the night? No, I wasn't surprised. Now, in terms of quantum, I don't know if it's going to be sufficient or not, but I think it's going to be important to wait and see what happens next. Increasingly, it looks like the trade story is going to drag on, possibly until after the 2020 election. How does that change your view of the kind of the markets that you are most exposed to? You've already talked about China. You've just talked about the United States. If it drags on, how does that change the trajectory? That's a very good question because so far, lots of talks, but when you look at it, the volume of global trade has not been too much under pressure, to be honest. All right? Now, I fully acknowledge that this starts to have an impact on the sentiment. That is absolutely I, I buy this one very well. And let's be clear. Let me step back. There are two key drivers for the mining industry and for Rio Tinto. GDP growth, I think we've covered it, and trade. So we're looking at trade very, in a very careful manner. 90%, 90% of our product cross the border. So trade is high on the, on the watch list here. Am I concerned today about my ability? When I look at my other books, am I concerned about trade today? No, I'm not. Are we going to continue to have a watching brief on it? The answer is yes. But all our models are showing that it would take a long and very deep situation to have a meaningful impact for us. So, watching brief, yes. Am I overly concerned? The answer is no today. Let's get more specific about, about your projects. Let's talk about Pilbara. Yes. Oh, it's a mine, yeah. Okay. There is, there is, do you think you could have, you could have, you could have developed that mine better? Do you think that you've missed opportunities at that project, mine? Do you think it has delivered all that you would have wanted it to do? Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, this mine was created 52 years ago, right? I'm not sure. I'm sure if you go back in time, in the last 50 years, we could have done things in a different way. But that's water on the bridge. We had, and we acknowledge it, we had a few operational issues in the first half of this year. Okay? Are we frustrated with it? Absolutely. But we have taken action to fix it. Now, let's step back. We degenerate in the Pilbara, or in our business in Australia, 72% EBDA margin in the first half. 72% EBDA margin. So, do we have operational issues? Yes. Are we addressing those issues? Absolutely. But we have a machine, which is a cash machine. Okay. That was the CEO of Rio Tinto talking to me a little bit earlier on the day addressing the issues that affect his company uh, and also the wider macro story. Let's talk about where equity markets are now globally. Fascinating to see U.S. equities now rebounding. Uh, we saw a weak ISM print a little bit earlier on today. Uh, manufacturing ISM, I should be more specific, in the United States, uh, which seems to have pointed the market in the direction that the Fed is going to deliver more than maybe the Fed hinted at yesterday in Jerome Powell's press conference, as a result of which we're seeing equities rallying and we're seeing yields falling. Payrolls tomorrow, obviously a massive, massive point for the market to pay attention to. If that number is weak tomorrow, does it just reinforce further uh, the number that we've seen today on the US manufacturing ISM and maybe gets us back to this kind of bad news is good news kind of scenario with the Fed? We will wait. Plenty of great coverage coming up of that number and its implications. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.